Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. It's a great joy to be back in Luke's gospel. Um, as, as fun as the uh, series on the five solas was, I'm much more used to, much more comfortable with, and much more at home going verse by verse through um, a book of the Bible. And so we return now to our study of Luke in chapter 17. And this morning is one of those happy coincidences, happy providences. It was unplanned. Because we have just celebrated as a nation this past Thursday, a day of national thanks, in its first instance of giving of thanks to God. Now our nation has quickly added the second holiday of thanksgiving to mammon on the following day where we celebrate um, desire and coveting and, oh, sorry. But for 24 hours, we we focus on thanks. It's just the 24 hours after that, we focus on getting stuff and deals. Um, And this text in front of us focuses on thanks. You'll notice the the title is the Thanksgiving of Faith. And I want to set out the fundamental question this text asks at the very beginning. We won't try to solve it until the end, but I want you thinking about it. We'll begin by reading it in just a moment, but it's a pretty straightforward narrative. You're probably familiar with it. The healing of the ten lepers and the one who returns thankful and giving glory to God. So we've gotten its centerpiece a One out of ten lepers is thankful. He's giving glory to God, and yet Jesus identifies his praise, his glory, and his thankfulness as faith. So the question we're trying to wrestle with this morning, trying to work through, the title even gets at is, what is the relationship between faith and thankfulness? Jesus sees a leper thankful, and he says, your faith has saved you. Jesus interprets what this man does as faith. Not only any faith, but saving faith. So how do, we, how do we figure those things out? I think it's a wonderful topic on the Sunday following Thanksgiving. So let's read Luke 17, 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance And lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Our text this morning unfolds over two narrative units. In both, first, the leper acts or the lepers act. They do something and they raise their voice. Or in the case of the one, he raises his voice. An acts, and then Jesus responds. That's the flow of the narrative. So in the, in the first instance, in verses 11 through 14, the, the ten lepers raise their voice. They give a plea. Jesus responds. And then in verses 15 through 19, one of the ten, he does something. He raises his voice, and Jesus responds. That's the flow of the narrative. And there's a, there's a contrast here at work that we're going to see. So let's begin in the first narrative unit. Ten lepers are cleansed. Ten Lepers are cleansed. What's helpful as we return to Luke is this section of Luke begins another sort of section introduction. We're reminded again for now the sixth time since chapter 9 that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is no small matter. If you'll turn back to chapter 9. This was the, the turning point in Luke's gospel. Jesus had been ministering in and around Galilee, presenting his messianic credentials, if you will. But after he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Luke 9, look at verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, or literally his exodus, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Jesus was going to do a deliverance, an exodus in Jerusalem. And when he comes down from the mountain, verse 51 becomes a major turning point in Luke's gospel. 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him, and he went on and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Is that clear? Jesus has now set his face, resolute in his purpose, unflinching, unwavering. He knows what awaits him. He's already told his disciples what awaits him. He will be betrayed. He'll be handed over. He will be killed. Jesus, knowing this, receiving encouragement from Elijah and Moses and from God the Father, is resolute and set. And then Luke reminds us of this. We're to understand the rest of Luke's gospel is unfolding under the shadow of the looming cross. The reader knows what's coming. Jesus has announced what's coming. And periodically we are reminded of what's coming. Look at chapter 13. As we move back forward, verses 22 and 23. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must be on my way today and tomorrow and the day after, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So Luke has been reminding us that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem six times explicitly, and then at other points in the narrative, we won't look at them as he was on his way, and we're to understand on his way to Jerusalem. And so, even though the section we're in is a section where Jesus is teaching, he's on the Jerusalem journey, and he alternates from teaching his disciples in the hearing of the Pharisees, and teaching the Pharisees in the hearing of the disciples. In fact, you'll see in the very next verse that we'll pick up next week, verse 20, in chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees. So even what happens here with the the ten lepers, the Pharisees are at hand, then verse 22, and he said to the disciples, and we're back to alternating between the disciples and the Pharisees. But Luke here reminds us again where he's going. I think that's also important because it'll help us frame our understanding of what's going on here. So the setting, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We're going to learn he hasn't really made a ton of progress, or if he has, his trip and route is, is not really straight. It's also possible that this occurred earlier. Luke doesn't tell us this happened sequentially. We are just told on the way to Jerusalem this happened. Because we next learn he's between Samaria and Galilee. He's kind of in this no man's land. Literally, he's right in the middle of the two. And I'll just briefly rehearse some of the history, but you know, we already know already from back in chapter 9, the Samaritans weren't pleased with Jesus because he was heading to Jerusalem. Samaria was the nation that arose with Samaria, its capital, founded by Omri, when the kingdom was divided. You remember the kingdom was divided under Solomon's son, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They split. You have the 10 northern tribes called Israel and the two southern tribes called Judah. And after the 10 northern tribes were taken away into captivity by Shalmaneser, what was left were these Jewish people, these stragglers who intermarried with the pagans and Samaritanism arose. And the Jews of the south viewed them as cursed. They only recognized the books of Moses as authentic scripture. They had an alternate place of worship on Mount Samaria. Remember the discussion with the Samaritan woman and Jesus. Our fathers say to worship here, yours there. And so Jesus, by virtue of going to Jerusalem, is picking sides in that debate. He's going to go celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. And so in chapter 9, the Samaritans didn't like that. And we know that the Jews viewed the Samaritans as accursed by God. Rather than learning the warning of God judging the ten northern tribes, which he later did the exact same judgment on the south when Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar came and took them away, they said, ah, see, they were filthy, dirty people and judged by God. So there's tremendous racial conflict going on between these two groups, and Jesus is walking right down the middle in between the two. That's the setting. Although Jesus has introduced the concept of a positive Samaritan in the story of the good Samaritans. We've seen the good and bad side of Samaria in Luke's gospel so far. Negatively, they have rejected Jesus in chapter 9 precisely because he's going to Jerusalem. Oh, you're one of those guys who recognize the the Jerusalem-centric worship. Well, we don't like you. But Jesus proffers a story where the hero, the good guy, 
The one who shows mercy is a Samaritan, and Jesus is now right in the middle, and that's important. Now we get the event. Ten lepers plead for mercy. Ten lepers plead for mercy. So on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Okay. Now, I don't know what you understand leprosy to be, but you probably have some misconceptions. What has been called leprosy for a while is, is properly known as Hansen's disease, and that's not what's in view here. Leprosy biblically is any persistent um, and egregious, that's to go deep into the skin, skin disease. And the effects of it for the community and God's law in it were, were, would absolutely change your life. I want you to listen to the prescription in Leviticus 13. The leprous person, verses 45 and 46, who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. Let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lips and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So if you had any one of these persistent skin diseases that went deep and they oozed, and there's, there's criteria, we're not going to read through it, that would qualify, but a number of diseases or conditions could qualify as leprosy. It was the end of your life in the community. You, you were outside the safety and the walls. And, and in this time and place in the Middle East, this was your security. The cities would have walls and gates to protect from attackers, to protect from animals. You're outside of all of that. You can't touch people. Your wife, your children cannot touch you. If they touch you, they become unclean. So the only thing you can do is gather with other people in your condition and beg and plead and so that perhaps is why this group is, is living in the no man's land in between, comprised of Samaritans and Jews, as we'll see. And they're, they're in a woeful state. I mean, just understand that they, they were living their life. And you just picture this. You're living your life, and one day you get some rash. You've got some, some oozing boil or something, and it won't go away, and it won't go away, and eventually a priest you're referred to the priest, and he declares you're unclean, he declares you have leprosy, and you are suddenly kicked out of the community. Whatever your job was, whatever your life was, it's over, it's done. You're removed from the community, removed from your family. This is the willful condition of these lepers. Now, Jesus has already, in Luke's gospel, um, overcome the power of leprosy. And we looked back in chapter five where he actually laid hands on and touched the leper and instead of what the law tells us would happen, which is what Jesus would become unclean, Jesus who has contagious holiness cleanses the leper. The leper becomes clean. It's kind of like you know, the Chuck Norris joke. When Chuck Norris falls in water, he doesn't get wet, the water gets Norris. Jesus doesn't get unclean. The leper gets holy when Jesus touches him. Here we're going to see Jesus' power over leprosy, but a different aspect of his power will be um, demonstrated. So these, these lepers are standing, and, and I want you to notice it tells us their location. That there's a contrast, there's parallels between the first encounter with the ten lepers and the second encounter with the one leper. And in both, both accounts, voices are raised, right? So we see in verse 13, they lifted their voice, contrasted with verse 15, praising God with a loud voice. And here we see their location. They stood at a distance. And in 15, the one leper will fall at Jesus' feet. So these 10 lepers have clearly learned something about Jesus. They know his name, and they call him Master. Not a tremendously significant title, not dripping with any sort of messianic theology, but a title of respect. And they, they turn to him as someone who can help them. And they plead for mercy. Their request is right. Listen to... to, to um, Listen to Psalm 123, verses 1 through 4. I mean, they might even be echoing this. The Song of Ascents. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of the servant looks to the hand of the master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. 
Our soul has had more than enough of scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So I want you to get these 10 lepers. They've got a lot of good things going for them. I think we can too easily, oh, they're the ungrateful ones. They, they, they recognize their need. They go to the right source for their need. They, they've understood Jesus is someone who can help. They've got his name. They call him master. They stand respectfully at a distance as the law demands. They don't approach him. And their request is the right thing. They need mercy. They're not arguing merit. Remember we talked about grace is God's free gift. They, they, they aren't pleading some right or obligation. What do they need? We need mercy. That's good. As far as it goes, it's good. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with grace and mercy. He saw them. When he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now Jesus' response has in it an element of a test, right? There's some similarities between this healing and the healing that occurred in Kings with Naaman. We've already had Naaman got brought up in chapter 4 of Luke. And if you remember, Naaman was the pagan, the Assyrian, who was a leper, and his servant girl, who was Jewish, told him about a man of God in Israel. He goes to Israel. And what's similar here, think about this, between this healing and Naaman, is the following. In both, a foreigner gets healed of leprosy at a distance with something to do first. So Naaman gets told, go bathe in the Jordan. And he's upset because he expected the man of God would raise his hands over the air and cast some spell or incantation or something. He doesn't even get to meet Elijah. And so he stumbles and he grumbles. Well, amazingly, these 10 lepers pass the test precisely where Naaman failed because Jesus' answer assumes the cure. Okay, listen to Leviticus 14. And how a leper is reintroduced to society. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. And the priest shall go out of the camp. And the priest shall look. Then, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take from him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedarwood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. So if you think you've been cured of leprosy, the text doesn't say how that happens. There's no prescription in the law of Moses for how to get cured. But if, if you've been cured, the priest comes out, because remember, you can't go in the city. The priest comes out of the city, he inspects you, and then, assuming you pass that inspection, you go and you offer a sacrifice according to Moses. Jesus told this exactly in chapter 5 to the leper. Go show yourself to the priest, give the sacrifices that Moses commanded. So Jesus' response, go show yourself to the priest is in effect saying, act as though I've done the thing you asked. And yet Luke goes out of his way to tell us they weren't at that moment healed. So here's, here's a test. You're still covered with sores and leprosy. Nothing has changed about you. You cry out to Jesus for help, and what he tells you to do is go do the thing you're supposed to do if you're cleansed. You're not yet cleansed. Because look in the next verse. He tells us, as they went... They were cleansed. The cleansing came in the going, not before. So when they turned, and when they started walking towards the priest, whoever that might be, they were not yet cleansed. So Jesus has required them to act, in some sense trusting him, in some sense evidencing some amount of faith. I don't want to give these guys too bad of a rap. As far as they go, they're fine. They come to the right source. They ask for the right thing, mercy and grace. And they're willing to trust Jesus. They passed the test precisely where Naaman grumbled and failed. Jesus' response, go show yourself to the priests. Which raises an interesting question that Luke doesn't really go into, but which priests? There'd be a Samaritan priests, there'd be um, Jewish-Israeli priests. We don't know who they went to. That's not what's important here. What is important is as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. This is so often the way God works. I don't know about you, but so often I want God to change my heart, help me love my neighbor, and then I'll go love my neighbor. And God's response is usually, why don't you go start acting as though I'm answering your request, and then I'll give you the strength to love your neighbor. Why don't you go start trying to love your neighbor, and I'll help you. Frequently, 
we, we need to act in faith and begin to obey before God shows up with grace and help. That's precisely what happens here. As they went, they're cleansed. And that's good as far as it goes. Ten lepers get cleansed. And, and I don't want to vilify them too far. This one is exemplary. This one is a model of faith. But, but I want you to be sympathetic with these ten. Right person, right request, and they obey. They act in some level of faith or trust. They, they, they're convinced Jesus is some sort of healer, some sort of miracle worker, and they're willing to take his prescription and go. And they all are cleansed. But now the second um, episode shows not ten but one. Instead of being cleansed, one leper is saved. One leper is saved. It's a contrast. Jesus, by the way, has just shown his power to heal. We've seen the power to heal when he touches and lays on hands. Here Jesus is healing remotely. In fact, the healing is such a non-event. He just tells them to go, and as they go, they were healed. Because Jesus is the Lord over disease, over the weather, over everything. But one leper now is saved. We read in verses 15 through 19. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. We're the nine. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So the, here's the contrast. In the first encounter, 10 lepers raise their voices to plead for mercy. Here, one leper praises God. That's the contrast. Both of them are raising their voices to do different things. In the first, the 10 lepers raise their voice pleading for mercy. Here, one leper raises his voice praising God. And notice the movement. First, he saw and noticed he was healed. We, don't, we aren't even told that the other nine are even aware they've been healed. I mean, surely at some point, they would, they would notice this. I mean, the whole act of going to the priest is presuming a healing. So I'm sure they're looking for it. And if your body stopped hurting, itching, um, oozing, you'd be aware of it. But we're only told this one noticed. We're not worried about the other nine now. We're focusing on this one, this model of faith and thankfulness. And he saw he was healed, and in seeing it, he returned, which is quite remarkable. Because if you're a leper, what's the one thing you want? Even more than healing, I think, you want to be readmitted to society. You want to be back with your family and loved ones. You want to be inside the protection of the city walls. You want to stop feeling the shame, the ignominy. And what's your way to be readmitted to society? What's your way to be welcomed back into the community? It's through the priest. The priest inspects you. The priest gives you a pass. You go make your offering, and you're back in. And Jesus has just told them, go to the priest. And yet this man turns around. He delays his readmission to the community to do something more important. He saw he was healed, and he returned. He returned. That's going to be important. What else does he do? He raises his voice. Before, he was one of the ten who raised his voice to plead for mercy. Now he raises his voice in praise of God. He turned back, praising God with a loud voice. This is not unusual of a response in Luke's gospel for healings. When the shepherds returned, Mike Doty read this morning the account of the angels Announcement. Well, what do the shepherds do upon their return? As the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Or when the, the man who was lowered on the mat was healed and got up and walked. Immediately he rose, picked up his bed that he'd been lying on, glorifying God. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So this is not an uncommon response in Luke's gospel to, to miraculous healings. He's praising God. Now, I don't, don't want you to think that the other nine are somehow Grinches. I imagine them as they learn that they're healed, smiling, skipping, dancing. But what they don't do is return. And they're not, we're not told that they raise their voice praising God. And third, and most remarkably, this man goes even further. Many people in Luke's gospel have praised God in response to healings and miracles. 
But in this third act, falling on his face at Jesus' feet, he enters into a very select group. We've seen this three times in Luke's gospel so far. The first is in Luke 5.8, where Jesus tells Peter to cast his net over the other side of the boat. Peter initially gives him some lip. Master, we're the professional fishermen here. We've been out all day. But your word, your word. And then when he sees the fish, he just falls on his face at Jesus' feet. And he says to him, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Next, in chapter 5, the leper whom Jesus heals, he falls at Jesus' feet. When he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And the third person in Luke's gospel who we've seen at Jesus' feet is the sinful woman. We're not explicitly told she was on her face, but in order to wash Jesus' feet with her hair, we're assuming she's in some sort of posture like that. Behold, a woman of the city was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them up with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So this leper, ex-leper, is now in, in a very small group of people who have fallen at Jesus' feet. The honor he's giving him. He falls on his face, and then Luke drops the bombshell. And the ESV preserves this, just as the Greek does. We know who this guy is. We lose the drama because we know the story. But for the first readers of Luke's account, this last little bit, this last little sentence is huge. Oh, and by the way, he was a Samaritan. And that's supposed to be shocking. Surely... Israel, the people who received all of Scripture, the ones who had kept the true worship in Jerusalem. Surely, if anyone's going to worship the Christ of God and figure this out, it's going to be an Israelite. No, it's a Samaritan. And you think, well, maybe all the lepers were Samaritans. I don't think so. We'll see that in a minute. I don't think so at all. And so we're meant to be surprised and Jesus will, will make a point of this as well in just a moment. This one who responds with faith, this one who responds with thanksgiving, giving glory to God, he is an accursed Samaritan. Okay. I think we are now to interpret this through Jesus' response. Jesus is going to ask three questions. The first questions um, show some of his bemusement. And this now, for the first time, we're going to see an implication of the people with Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been traveling with a large crowd, an entourage, and not only does he have his crowd and his disciples, but apparently there's a band of Pharisees who are within earshot because he keeps going back and forth with them. And yet this entire event so far has been told as though it's almost just Jesus by himself. But now for the first time implicit, they're there. They're implicit because Jesus is clearly talking to some third party who's not this Samaritan. So look at his questions. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed, where are the nine was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Okay. So, first we have questions. Ten were cleansed, where are the other nine? Jesus is singling this man out. And the form of his rhetorical questions is meant to communicate something. What this one man is doing ought not the other to be doing as well. See, he is exemplary, but there's a deficiency with the other nine. It's not simply that what this one guy does is great, but Jesus, through the rhetorical question, is showing a certain amount of chagrin, a certain amount of disapproval for the other nine. Were there not ten who were cleansed? By the way, this, this, this confirms all ten of them were cleansed. On Jesus' lips, were not ten cleansed. This is not the only one who was cleansed. Where are the nine? And then in verse 18, we move from question to observation, where Jesus says, and it's another question, but I think this is even more of just a, a stating of fact, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Now here, Jesus speaks to those who accompany him. Jesus speaks to those who accompany him. We know he's not talking to this leper because he speaks about the leper in the third person. This foreigner. You, you don't talk to the foreigner speaking about this foreigner. So Jesus is implicitly now teaching those who are with him. And we, we know from Luke's gospel who those are, the crowds. 
The Pharisees, the disciples, they're all presumably in earshot. They're going to they're pick up in the next verse, verse 20. The Pharisees are going to ask them a question. Verse 22, the disciples are going to speak. So they're all here. For the first time, they're implicitly involved. Jesus is using this one man as a case study, as a teaching point for those who are with him. And this question that none returned except this foreigner, he speaks to those who accompanied him, and in doing so, he indicts the nine and Israel's unbelief. Jesus is the one who highlights this foreigner. This is, by the way, also how we realize not all the other nine are Samaritans. Because what's the point of saying, was no one found except this foreigner if they're all foreigners? Well, of course, if they're all foreigners, there's no other possibility. And yet Jesus is highlighting the fact that the least likely of them, at least in human judgment, to, to do this act of faith and praise is the one who did it. So we can presume at least some, if not most, of the other nine were Jewish. And he indicts there and Israel's unbelief. This is similar, in fact, to what he says to the... Remember the centurion who sent a delegation requesting that Jesus heal his servant? And as Jesus approaches, he sends out the second. No, he's not worthy. Don't come in. He knows he's a man who has authority. He knows you can do it. And what is Jesus' response? He simultaneously commends the centurion but indicts Israel, right? He says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now that's the irony, isn't it? That God has been sending prophets to Israel. He didn't send prophets to China. He didn't send prophets to other countries. The Jews alone received the oracles of God, Paul reminds them in Romans 3. If anyone's going to recognize the Messiah, if anyone's going to respond correctly, certainly it should be the Jews, Israel. And yet John's gospel tells us he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And here we see that again. Luke's highlighting that again. We've seen the great faith of the centurion, who's a Roman. Now we're to see the faith of a Samaritan, in contrast to everyone else. So Jesus is using this teaching opportunity of this one man to indict Israel's unbelief. Remember, he's walking along the border of Samaria and Galilee. He does this remarkable work. And in this section of Luke, miracles are scarce. Most of this section of Luke is, is comprised of Jesus teaching his disciples and teaching the Pharisees. But we get this miracle, but Jesus uses it to indict Israel's unbelief. We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then Jesus turns, questions, observations. Now we have commendation, commendation. He says to him, your faith has saved you. Now at this point, I take issue with the ESV. Now the, the, the Greek word group, the Sozo family, can mean cleansed or healed or delivered. It's any sort of deliverance in a disease sense. It would mean healing. And if you're in danger, it would mean a resolution of that. And in a spiritual sense, it means salvation. And I was actually read a number of commentaries that are trying to argue it means exactly that, that all Jesus is saying is your cleansing, your healing from leprosy was brought about by your faith. And the reason why... I don't know why the ESV does this, but I know why some commentators argue this, is precisely because we've seen how positive these other nine have been. They, they came to Jesus. They have the right request. They act with some amount of faith going to the priest that they take Jesus as simply saying, to the one who happened to return, all of your all's faith has saved you. All of you all exercised faith. All of you all got healed. I don't think so. Jesus has, to some degree, rebuked the other nine. He has indicted the other nine. He's singling this man out. And I believe what Jesus is saying is this man is getting something additional the other didn't get. He's already said the other ten were cleansed. So what does this man by faith receive that the others didn't? It's precisely not his healing. They all were cleansed. Jesus said as much. So what else is left? Your faith has saved you. I think we're talking about justification, forgiveness of sins. This, again, is not an uncommon statement for Jesus in Luke's gospel. This is precisely what he said to the woman washing his feet. And there it becomes clear as Jesus talks with Simon. Your sins are little. She's been forgiven much, therefore she loved much. Go your way, your faith has saved you. 
So we already have in Luke's gospel precedent for this exact phrase to speak specifically at the forgiveness of sins, which is what I'm convinced is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Which makes that contrast. Ten lepers pleaded for mercy. They got a cleansing. They got what they asked for. One of them gets something else that's far, far, far greater. It makes the lack of faith on the other's part even more tragic. They, they went, presumably, were reintegrated to society. They lived healthy, productive lives and went to hell. Unless at some later point in their life they came to faith in Jesus, all the benefit they received was temporal and gone in a flash. This one returns, and he is told that his faith has saved him. So now I want to know. This gets back to our question we started with. What's the relationship with faith and thanksgiving? Because we're not told he believed. What did he believe? What are we told about this man? He returned. He raised his voice and gave glory to God. And he fell at Jesus' feet, thanking him. And yet Jesus interprets that as faith. Go, rise and go, your faith has saved you. So how are we to equate praising God, the giving of thanks, and the falling at Jesus' feet as faith? I want to know, because I don't want, and I don't want you, to simply receive the temporal blessings of Christ and go to hell like the other nine. What, what, what is the relationship between thanksgiving and faith? How does faith produce thanksgiving and praise? Well, turn to Romans chapter 1. I think we can help see it by understanding unbelief and sin. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, the Apostle Paul lays out God's charge against humanity. From chapter 1, 18 in Romans all the way to chapter 3, Verse 20, the Apostle Paul is going to close every door of escape and indict the entire human race before God's law court. And what is the number one primary charge against mankind? Let's let's start actually in verse 18, Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And then what follows in Romans 1 is three times God then gives them up. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Why that's significant is this. Here is the primary charge of the prosecution, and what follows in Romans 1 is God's response. So what is the primary, fundamental root of sin that God is angry at and of which he will punish with his wrath? It is, verse 21, the fact that we know God and we refuse to honor him and give thanks. So the fundamental heart and root of sin is knowing God's there, being unwilling to honor him and give thanks to him. So so being thankful is a big deal. It's the evidence of unbelief in sin. Thanklessness is what brings on God's wrath. And you think about it, even back in the garden, right? God makes a perfect sinless utopia for the man and the woman, and he gives them a garden, and he gives them each other, and he gives them himself. And the serpent comes along, and rather than them being thankful for all these blessings, what do they focus in on? The one thing they can't have. And become discontent. They covet it. They take it and they eat it. They aren't filled with thanks. They begin to suspect God. Now, it takes a serpent to plant that idea in their head, but once he plants that idea, it takes root. You can't trust him. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's holding things back from you. This God who gave them this utopia who's done nothing but bless them, instead of being filled with thanks, instead of honoring his commands, they they begin to covet and doubt. Instead of being thankful, they sin. So thanklessness is a huge part of the problem. Let me read, in fact, one quote from 
Tremper Longman. In Romans 1.21, he writes, shows us that thanksgiving is what we're created for. It is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The real difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the former gives thanks to God. That's a strong statement. What's the difference in one sense between a Christian and a non-Christian? One of the two gives thanks to God. So this, this man's thanksgiving to Christ falling at his feet. By the way, notice there the barrier is broken before they had to stand afar off, but now because he's been cleansed, he, he is presumably either not thinking about that, but he's, he's, he's drawing near to Christ, falling at his feet, praising God with a loud voice, thanking Christ, humbling himself before him. So how, how does faith come out of this? Three things. Three things I think we can learn about the relationship between faith and thanksgiving. We, we just saw in Romans 1 that the mark of unbelief is thanklessness. First, true faith is attentive to God's grace. True faith is attentive to God's grace. My point here is simply this. We don't know when the other nine realized they were healed. We're only told this one man noticed he was looking for it. He, he was alert spiritually. And more than that, presumably, he had to do some thinking. Because even in the Pentateuch, and remember, the Samaritans only kept the Pentateuch. But even in the Pentateuch, we get in Deuteronomy 18, the promise from God that he would raise up a prophet from among you and your brethren like Moses. So perhaps the Samaritan, upon realizing he's been healed, realizes the implications of who that means Jesus is. Somehow, he's going to become, in this text, a Christ worshiper. He's going to fall down on his face in obeisance, humiliation before Christ. And so presumably, he's thought through this. He's attentive to God's grace. He's thinking through the implications of what God is doing. He's alert to God working. He's not only made a request, but he's got his eyes open for the answer of the request. And when the request is answered... Faith works through the implications of that. So often we can pour out our hearts to God, ask for things, we'll raise our voices for the things we need, and that is good. There's nothing, nothing wrong with these nine others who cried out for mercy. That is good. God calls on us to draw near to him, raise our voices, plead, beg him, ask again and again and again like a persistent widow for mercy. That's great. But be equally attentive to God's answer. You know, so many people in a foxhole will cry out for help. And then as soon as the dilemma goes away, as soon as the calamity goes away, as soon as the, the, the problem is resolved, they get distracted. This, this one man noticed. This one man thought through the implications. Faith is attentive to God's grace. Faith is attentive to God's grace. Jesus has already been warning in Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verse 18, take care then how you hear the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. This, this guy asks, but also is attentive to the answer, and he's thinking through it. He's, he's working out the math. Point number two, true faith prioritizes worship. Prioritizes worship. Now, I already remarked about this before, but by returning, praise God and fall down at Jesus' feet. What is this man doing? He's delaying the very thing he asked for. Because they want mercy so they can be reintegrated into the society. And you don't do that unless you go to the priest. He doesn't go to the priest, he goes to Jesus. Because worshiping Christ, giving thanks to him and worshiping God for this Samaritan is more important than getting the very thing he asked for. And that's another thing we get about faith. I have no doubt that these other nine, as they realize they've been healed, are smiling. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were, praise God, if they were thankful in a, in a small sense, you know? But what they aren't doing is altering their life, altering the things they're doing to give worship and praise to God. Faith, faith does that. Faith asks for things from God. And when faith receives, faith makes a priority of worship. This guy as much as he wants to be readmitted, as much as he may want to see his loved ones, his wife, his children, his family, his communities, all of that can wait 
while he worships God and gives thanks to Jesus. This, again, is part of, I think, why the setting is brought in. We know Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus won't be here later to be thanked. If he's going to worship Christ and thank him, he must do it now. And faith prioritizes worship. It gets beyond simply a happy attitude. I mean, these men are not grumbling, you know, about time we got healed. I have no doubt. They're thankful, in a sense. But their thankfulness doesn't reach a priority where they stop what they're doing. In other words, their eyes are set purely on this world and on the things of this world. They, they want to get reintegrated to their families. That's a good thing. Jesus healed them so that they could do that. What they don't have is a priority for the more important things. And the tragedy of this story is nine men get a blessing and one of them gets saved. True faith prioritizes worship. True faith prioritizes worship. It's the same thing we saw with the woman who washed Jesus' feet. When, when she realized she was forgiven, she didn't care if she was humiliating herself in the middle of a Pharisee's dinner party, did she? She barged in, certainly wasn't invited, because Jesus was there, and, I, and my heart is overflowing with joy and thanksgiving. I need to thank him and wash his feet with my tears. That's what faith does. Because, point three, true faith joyfully gives thanks and praise to God. True faith joyfully gives thanks and praise to God. Now, this is an important point to get. If, if you're sitting here in any way, like I was this week, being convicted of the low levels of thankfulness in my heart, this is one of those things you can't just fake. If, if, you, if you're convicted, man, I'm not, I, I might be like those nine. I regularly ask God for things, but I don't likewise make the priority of worship and praise when God gives me those things that I ask for and need. Don't, don't fake it. The, the relationship between faith and thankfulness, I think, is the, is the key. If we're not thankful, what's that an evidence of, according to Jesus? A lack of faith. So you can't skip over that lack of faith and just, okay, I'll just, I will show up to church, I will praise him, I will sing the songs. That's not going to do. The, the, the problem with faith has to be there. Listen, listen to John Piper speak about the, the relationship between faith and, and uh, thankfulness. I exalt gratitude, he writes in um, Future Grace. I exalt gratitude as a central biblical response of the heart to the grace of God. The Bible commands gratitude to God as one of our highest duties. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, Psalm 100, verse 4. God says that gratitude honors him in Psalm 50, verse 23. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. But it's meant to come from a heart of faith. Here's, here's the way faith looks. Hebrews 11 tells us, we need to approach God as, as one who is and one who rewards those who seek him. So faith says there is a God, and this God rewards, gives blessings to those who draw near to him. And I'm going to draw near to him and ask for help. And when God gives the help, faith is overjoyed that he did keep his word. The things I was hoping and trusting about him were true. He, he is faithful. He is full of love and mercy. He does overflow in grace. And he's given me the thing that I asked for. How great is this God? And it naturally wells up. His faith is attentive to such things. And faith prioritizes such things. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 10 through 12. Again, I think this helps us see the relationship between faith and thankfulness. And then this, is, this is the work you and I need to do if we find ourselves thankless. It's not go fake it, sing an extra verse of I exalt thee, but, but do the, the spiritual work of asking God to help us see and believe the things that are true so that joy and thanksgiving wells up naturally. Psalm 30, verses 10 through 12. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. Right? O Lord, my helper, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. The psalmist says the reason God has answered the request and been gracious is so that we would respond in praise and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
That's why God made us, is to praise him. He delights to do us good. I've said this before. We, we get the blessing, he gets the glory. He gives us the grace and the blessings, and our tongues praise him in joy. Your tongue isn't praising him in joy. Please don't fake it. Do the, the more fundamental issue of what's going on in my heart with faith and belief that I'm not seeing. Faith is crucial. The hallmark of unbelief is thanklessness. And if you just stop and look, if you just stop and catalog just the, some of the mercies God has given us today that we don't deserve, we, we've got the sun shining. I mean, you, we're all healthy enough to come here this morning, and you know people who aren't. We live in a country where we're free to gather as this, and many others in the world are not. And I'm just speaking about temporal blessings. I'm just speaking about, about temporal and inconsequential things. We haven't even begun to consider this gift of his son. We're approaching Christmas season. Isn't that precisely what we're looking at, commemorating, dwelling upon? God did not withhold from us his own son, but he gave him to us. How will he not freely give us all things? He's redeemed us. He's adopted us. I mean, the grace and the things that God has done for us, we will for eternity praise him and never run out of things to praise him for. So if you've run out of things to praise God for now, something's wrong. And I'd encourage you to, to, to ask God to help you see, to spend the time to contemplate God's goodness for you so that your faith would well up with thanksgiving so that you might imitate this Samaritan leper. Don't, don't be like the other nine because the terrible tragedy is they got the thing they sought. They got the small blessing and they missed the big one. Now, maybe we can hope, maybe later in life, as they thought about these things, they too came to the conclusion of the other one. But here, they missed it. They got the temporal blessing. They got the thing they wanted. But their eyes were below the sun. Their, 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 their scope of their, their recognition of their need was too small. And this one Samaritan leper got the free grace. The free grace. It was free. He didn't earn it. But his faith caused him to turn back. More important than, than getting the thing I want is praising God. And Jesus selects him to contrast with the entire nation of Israel. This one Samaritan leper condemns the entire nation of Israel with this thankfulness and thanksgiving of faith. As we leave the season of thanksgiving, let's continue to give thanks, to contemplate God's blessings, and he will continue to be gracious to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we ask for the grace that we might see the blessings that are too numerous to count that are ours. Guard us from thanklessness, from presuming upon your grace, from taking for granted all the mercies that are fresh every day. Lord, may our lips and mouths open loud praise to you. Let us never shrink back from not only asking for help, but praising you when it is given. Lord God, let us be a people of praise for your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.